Hi, everybody, and welcome to Story and Star Wonks Live, take two of our live discussion of the original trilogy of Star Wars. It is 10 a.m. Friday morning on the 23rd of October. We're a few days later than usual. We did record a live session on Tuesday night, but it was calamitous. There were so many technical problems, so many technical interruptions, and then finally, the recording was unsalvageable. So here we are trying this whole thing again. If you were there for the live discussion on Tuesday night, then a lot of this material will be familiar to you. If you weren't, then this is on you. For podcast listeners, if you are listening just to the audio version of my voice right now, then I urge you to check out the show notes for the slides which will accompany this presentation. That will help you make sense of what I'm talking about. And if you're watching this on YouTube, then that will be fine because the slides will appear on your screen. Hi, everyone. This I've never done a live broadcast at 10 a.m. before, so this is a novel experience for me. The earliest I normally broadcast live is 2 p.m. Eastern, but... This is, this is fun, actually. I'm all high energy. I've had my coffee. I'm ready to go. Hello to Lini and to Maya and to Allison and to Carla all the way from Portugal. Guys, thank you so much for making it. I'm thrilled that you were able to make it on such short notice. All right. Here we go. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about the original trilogy. If you guys have questions, then by all means, shout out in uh, the YouTube chat or on Twitter using the hashtag Starwonks so that I will see it here on the side of my screen. I'm going to address some of the emails that I received over the course of the last few weeks as we've been discussing the original trilogy. And then at the end, we're going to talk just a little about the trailer for The Force Awakens, which came out on Monday. Just a very little. I'm trying to stay fairly spoiler agnostic on The Force Awakens, so we're not going to delve into deep speculation or anything like that. But there were a couple of things that were really striking about the trailer from a narrative perspective, so I want to talk about those. Let me say right up front, though, then I'm really excited to reach this inflection point in the seminar series, because what comes next is going to be richer and deeper and more complex than what we've already had, not because the movies are better or because they're more worthy or because there's more text there, but just because the original trilogy behaves very much as a foundational text for Star Wars. And within the bounds of the original trilogy, there isn't a great deal of... of intertextuality. There isn't a great deal of, of reference made to itself. The stories play out fairly straight. It's difficult to think. I mean, you're looking at the loss of hands and body parts. You're looking at the repetition of the I love you, I know in Empire compared to uh, in Jedi, rather, uh, repeating the beat from Empire. There are a few little bits and pieces there, but not a great deal. Now, when we get to the prequel trilogy, when we arrive at The Phantom Menace next week, there's going to be a lot of, of intertextuality, of self-referentialism. We're going to really look at the way in which this text interrogates, reflects, develops, subverts its own sense of myth and legend. And that's something that's very, very interesting about the new trailer. So really what we're doing here is putting a cap on the first phase of this discussion, but we are not done even after this discussion talking about the original trilogy because there are numerous points about those first three movies that will only really be, we will only be equipped to really discuss after looking at some of the prequel texts too. I see here, Alison is in Australia and is usually up in the middle of the night to join us for our live broadcast, but here she is at home. She is hanging out, drinking wine. Alison, I am somewhat jealous. Yes. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Let's get into it. I want to begin with uh, a question that came to me from Grant. And this is another one of these questions that is going to speak 
both to the original trilogy as a foundational text and then to the prequel trilogy as a development of that original text and original intent. Grant was curious about the distinction I saw between intellectually rewarding science fiction and emotionally rewarding fantasy. He says, I find a lot to contemplate in Star Wars and similarly often find myself emotionally engaged by Star Trek. Is the difference always true or is it a quick and dirty rule of thumb? This is in reference to my statements in, I think, the introductory lecture of the series where I talked about Star Wars as fantasy rather than science fiction. And the distinction there is a subtle one. It's a treacherous one sometimes because sometimes it can lead us down dark paths of speculation. I certainly should have stressed at the time that this is not a binary proposal. Texts are not science fiction if they are intellectually rewarding or fantasy if they are emotionally rewarding. There is a whole rich spectrum between those two polar opposites. It's not just, though, a two-dimensional or, or, or a one-dimensional, I guess, spectrum. It is, in fact, a two-dimensional matrix. We have two different forces at work here. Let me uh, call up this first slide. That will serve to illustrate some of this. Here we are. So on your screen now, you should be able to see the science, the, the science fiction and fantasy matrix. Here we have a horizontal axis running from magic on the left-hand side to technology on the right-hand side, and a vertical axis running from intellectual on the top to emotional on the bottom. The first thing that I have to say, and the thing that I cannot stress enough, I cannot emphasize enough, is that none of these terms are supposed to be judgmental. Emotional storytelling is not less worthy or less sophisticated or less accomplished or less important than intellectual storytelling. Technologically, rationally biased stories are not inherently more worthy of more value than magic and mysticism-based stories. So wherever your story falls on here, it has an equal shot of being good, bad, or indifferent. So the way that the, the axes work can basically be simplified in this regard. The further to the right a story is, the more it is going to be biased toward technology, the more it is going to be biased toward a rationalist, consistent worldview, the worldview of science, if you like. One of the possible oppositions here is magic versus science, but that honestly gets you into a loaded, uh, a loaded semantic conflict that I don't really want to address or unpick. So here we're talking about spaceships and, and, and lasers and, and orbital structures and all of that kind of stuff, computers and implants and, and the, the trappings of science fiction technology, the more of that you have, the more to the right you are going to be skewed. The more you rely on magic and mysticism and, I guess, irrationalism, though that too is a loaded term, the more fantastical your setting, the further to the left you are going to skew on this matrix. The further toward the top you are, the more intellectually biased the rewards of your story will be. Intellectual rewards in narrative can come in many forms, but you're generally looking at things like puzzles, you're looking at riddles, you're looking at philosophy, you're looking at world building or history. You're looking at things that will make you read the story, enjoy the story, but feel somehow intellectually enriched by the experience. Emotionally biased stories will give you, rather than that very kind of cool analytical pleasure of, of intellectual reward, you will instead get that rush of emotional reward. You will get catharsis. You will get the thrill of adventure or that, that gushy rush of falling in love if you're reading a romance. So all sci-fi fantasy stories, all speculative fiction will fall somewhere on this matrix. 
Let me give you some examples by moving on to the next slide here. And here I've picked a random selection of sci-fi and fantasy movies. Obviously, you can play this game at home with your favorite texts. Uh, in the top right quadrant, the intellectual technological uh, movies and stories, we have things like The Matrix, Blade Runner, Contact, and right out there on the edge, the most intellectually biased, the most technologically biased story that I could think of, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Very few emotional rewards, though by no means none, but very few emotional rewards from 2001, but a ton of intellectual reward. So that is our top right quadrant, intellectual technological. In the bottom right quadrant, we have technological emotional stories. This is where we use the trappings of science fiction, the trappings of technology, the trappings of rationalism and of the natural world to instead deliver an emotional punch. This is where you'll find your Back to the Future or Jurassic Park or Pacific Rim or the J.J. Abrams reboot of Star Trek. The original Star Trek series, I mean, there are so many different flavors of Star Trek that I could occupy one of these matrices with <laughs> just different versions of Star Trek. Star Trek generally is more biased toward the intellectual end of the spectrum, but certainly the J.J. Abrams reboot pretty much abandoned that and embraced instead a much more dynamic and muscular kind of emotional storytelling. In the bottom left quadrant, we have emotional magical stories. These are your classic fantasies. This is your Avatar and your Harry Potter and your Narnia stories. That's where they live. Particularly here, I've put uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right out at the edge here. Very, very biased toward magic. Very, very biased toward emotional. The book would be a little higher, a little, a little further up in this matrix because I think the book is a little more intellectually rewarding than the movie is, but the movie, again, stripped out a lot of that stuff and went for the emotional punch. Again, not judgment. <laughs> That's a completely fine and worthy and valid thing to do. Oh, and of course, a lot of people here in the YouTube chat are picking on The Martian, which would also be absolutely, uh, it is a technological fantasy, a technological sci-fi story. I'm going to be very careful misusing the word fantasy or at least using it carelessly. It is a technologically biased story. The Martian would absolutely appear at the far, far right of the spectrum. And I would put it probably three quarters of the way up. I'd put it just under 2001 A Space Odyssey there. I haven't seen the movie yet, at least, but the book is just magnificent. Then in the top left, we have what is my, if I was forced to pick, I would probably pick this as my favorite quadrant of this matrix. Um, but it is also the quadrant of the matrix that is most underserved in popular culture. This is your intellectual magic stories. Lord of the Rings belongs here. Game of Thrones, arguably, at least in terms of its focus on history and politics and, and, and machination, you know, Game of Thrones belongs up there too. And Frank Herbert's Dune, I would argue, belongs in that space too, though much closer to the middle. And you'll note there that there's one movie on the screen that I haven't mentioned, which is Marvel's The Avengers. The Avengers was the text that more than any other, to me, sat right in the middle of this matrix. Um, as you'll see on the display there, it's a little off to the side, but it's as close to the middle as I could get with a fairly recent, fairly well-known movie. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to uh, take a look at where you guys place your favorite stories on this matrix. Then the reason that I bring it up, the reason I think that Grant asked the question in the context of Star Wars is that we are going to see a shift. Star Wars right now is a technological, emotional story. I would put it probably not terribly far away from where the J.J. Abrams reboot of Star Trek is. I would put it somewhere down in that corner. Very emotionally rewarding, not terribly intellectually 
rewarding, though certainly there are still rich veins of speculation of philosophy contained within the text, but it's primarily an emotional reward that you get from the original trilogy. That is going to change when we get to the prequel trilogy, because the prequel trilogy is going to become interested in non-emotional intellectual rewards, the rewards of clarification, of world building, the rewards of historical detail and context. We're going to spend a lot of time in the prequel trilogy accounting for things that we already know from the original trilogy, and that is completely fine. Those rewards, again, are not to be dismissed. That's not nothing, but it is a shift. And I think that as many Star Trek fans were alienated by J.J. Abrams' reboot, were, were infuriated by it because they felt it wasn't Star Trek, and for the record, that's where I am. I think those are great movies. I think they are bad Star Trek. I think a lot of people felt the same way about the prequel trilogy, that they are, to some degree or other, decent to middling movies, but they are, in a sense, bad Star Wars. Now, I don't think I completely support that notion, but I do think that the different positions that you would place each of the Star Wars movies on this matrix do account in part for differing tastes. Of course, we'll get to that in much, much more detail next time. All right. Let's move on from there, and I will cancel that slide. All right, let's see what we have here. You will not, however, says Garrett, find a future where the Cubs win the 2015 World Series. Yes, well, for those of you who are Patreon supporters, of course, you will know by now that we released our commentary track for Back to the Future 2 this week. Patreon.com slash StoryWonk if you want to listen to our thoughts on Back to the Future 2. And then during that commentary track, I'm just going to take a tangent here for a second. During that commentary track, we were speculating about Bob Gale, the writer of Back to the Future. We were speculating about his intent with regard to alternate 1985 Biff and whether there was any kind of connection between Biff and Donald Trump. The day after we released that, that uh, commentary track, of course, Bob Gale is all over the media saying, absolutely, that was a deliberate parody. It's a good movie. I'll, I'll, I'll go to the map for Back to the Future, too. All right. <laughs> and Allison is, is uh, giving us some kind of cryptic message here in the YouTube chat, but apparently it was caused by her cat. <laughs> cats are perilous to keyboards. I don't allow either of our cats into the office here for exactly that reason. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to the next question, and this I think is um, this is probably going to dominate the bulk of our time here today. This I think is fascinating. Helena wrote asking about the hero's journey. In fact, she wrote simply saying, "Reminding you that you promised to talk about the hero's journey." I translated part of the Epic of Gilgamesh for my thesis, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm pretty intimidated by that, Helena. No kidding. Um, I have never translated part of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I wouldn't like to try, but I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that it's been done. Let's talk about the hero's journey, and particularly, of course, the hero's journey with regard to Star Wars. In his 1949 book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell put together this staggering and, and, and incomprehensibly sophisticated piece of, of comparative mythology. He had sifted through dozens, hundreds of myths from all over the world and identified within those myths a common structure the passage from the natural world into the supernatural world, and then the return. The hero travels outside of his own context, is, is initiated, becomes the perfect form of himself, and then returns home with treasures, with rewards that he can distribute as he sees fit. Joseph Campbell wrote that book in 1949. And throughout the latter half of the 20th century, it 
influenced to a greater and greater degree many people who were interested in narrative, particularly the epic narrative forms, you know, your, your traditional epic, your saga, your, your long-form sprawling narrative that addresses the really biggest issues of who we are and why we are here. George Lucas, of course, has accredited Joseph Campbell as a major inspiration for Star Wars many, many, many times over. And that leads to a lot of people looking at Star Wars as a template for the hero's journey. They see Star Wars as being the perfect embodiment of this form. Now, there are two things that we have to clarify first off. The first is that Joseph Campbell never intended his book to be a guide to story structure in the in the prescriptivist sense. He didn't want, or, or I'm sure he didn't think about, he didn't intend for people to use his book in order to write stories. This was a, a, a piece of descriptive, not proscriptive work. Really, that changed in the late 1980s and then in the early 1990s when Christopher Vogler published his book, The Writer's Journey, which really codified the hero's journey and gave, gave a sense of, of, of agency to writers who wanted to pursue it as a workable story structure. I actually have, uh, you can probably see behind me about there in the shot there, you can probably see behind me a copy of Christopher Vogler's book. Now, the other thing that we have to consider is that the hero's journey is not, despite what some people will tell you, a universal story structure. There are plenty of other structures out there that don't conform to the hero's journey structure. They are not monomythic in nature. Not even all fairy tales, myths, ancient stories conform to monomythic structure. Most do. Most have some elements, but by no means all. And even those that do, I can't think, I, I spent a couple of days thinking about this last week, and I can't think of a single monomythic story, not even Gilgamesh, not even Beowulf, that conforms to all of the observed and noted structural points of monomythic structure. So this is a, a loose presentation. This is a loose guide to mythic structure. It is by no means definitive, even in the best case. And when we get to Star Wars... Well, let's get to it. Let's let's look at this and see what we can discern about monomythic structure in Star Wars. I have here, here we are. I have here a slide looking at the the three act breaks of. Yes, good. <laughs> that is that has updated. I'm glad my my screen froze for a moment there, and I was having flashbacks to terrible technical troubles. But everything is working. Here on the screen, you will see the three acts of Campbellian monomythic structure. And within those three acts, you'll see each of the major anchor scenes that he described. Now, we're going to move through these, and most of these are fairly intuitive. Some, in fact, have, have actually entered the vocabulary, just the pop culture vocabulary. You don't even have to be terribly interested in mythic storytelling to understand, for example, the call to adventure or the crossing of the threshold, these kinds of scenes. So let's move through this, and we'll see how it matches to Star Wars. We begin with the call to adventure. The hero begins in a situation of normality from which some information is received that acts as a call to head off into the unknown. What would we do with that scene in Star Wars? How would we link that scene to Star Wars? This, for me, is Luke receiving the message or seeing the message from Leia contained within R2-D2. This is the information that he receives that is the call to adventure. We then have the refusal of the call. This is the moment when the hero decides actually, no, I'm not going to undertake this mission. I'm not going to leave behind the natural world and enter the realm of the supernatural in order to achieve great things. He hesitates. He stalls. This, I think, is when Luke leaves Obi-Wan's and says, nope, I'm not going to do this. I'm not interested in this. We then have 
supernatural aid. Once the hero has committed to the quest, consciously or unconsciously, his guide and magical helper appears or becomes known. I think it's interesting in terms of Star Wars that we actually invert those two scenes, that we have the supernatural aid happening before the refusal of the call. The supernatural aid, I would argue, is Obi-Wan rescuing Luke from the Tusken Raiders. He shows up, he's he's otherworldly, he manages to scare off the Tusken Raiders and takes Luke back. Yeah, takes Luke back home. We then have the crossing of the threshold. The crossing of the threshold is perhaps the most important scene in monomythic structure. And you'll see there in act three that it is paired with another crossing the threshold scene. That is the return. The first crossing the, crossing the threshold scene, excuse me, is that moment where the hero steps out of the natural world into the supernatural world. And I'm, I'm using supernatural world here in the broadest possible sense. It's simply another world. It's a different world. Usually in myth, this is the part where the hero leaves behind what we understand to be the real world and enters the realm of fairy or the realm of the gods or, you know, transgresses into hell or whatever, whatever the, the story requires, whatever separate space is used in this particular version of myth, then we, we, we generally arrive at that by crossing the threshold here. This, for me, as I noted in our breakdown of A New Hope, is the moment when Luke is on the overlook over Moss Eisley. Moss Eisley is the other world. This is a world away from his, his sheltered, quiet, moisture farmer life. And we can infer, I think, that it's also a world away from whatever delights Toshi Station had to offer. He's clearly out of his depth the minute we arrive at Moss Eisley. We then have a, a, an interesting scene, an interesting monomythic structural element here, the belly of the whale. The belly of the whale, writes Campbell, represents the final separation from the hero's known world and self. By entering this stage, the person shows a willingness to undergo a metamorphosis. Now, there are a couple of ways of looking at this, and this is one of those monomythic scenes which is perhaps the least well-defined and is the most likely to be attributed to just, well, that's kind of like this, so we'll just slot it in over there. There are three possible explanations for the belly of the whale in A New Hope, I would argue. The first is simply Luke's presence in the falcon. The falcon itself is the whale. Luke is swallowed up by it and ferried off to the other world. This is our transitive sequence where he leaves behind the mundane world of Tatooine and enters the supernatural realm of the Death Star. That's possible. That's certainly possible. It's also possible to see the Death Star itself as the whale, though then we end up in this odd, this odd point of imbalance where the Death Star is both the supernatural realm and the means of getting to the supernatural realm. Doesn't quite work. Oftentimes when you see Star Wars broken down in monomythic terms, you will see the belly of the whale being referred to as the trash compactor scene. That scene with the Dianoga after they liberate Leia, that is actually pretty good. That's actually a pretty good match of structural intent. The problem is, as you'll note, the belly of the whale scene in A New Hope, therefore, occurs much later in the story. Let's move into Act 2. We have already, I would argue, transitioned to Act 2 in A New Hope, but the act breaks in Joseph Campbell's monomythic structure don't quite match the kind of act breaks that you would expect from classic Aristotelian three-act structure. They're less it's less a case that there are three acts than there are three parts. And those are going to be of differing lengths and differing, differing importances within the frame of the narrative. 
We then get into Act 2, Initiation. This leads us to the Road of Trials, which is just a, a series of obstacles that the hero must overcome. Obviously, we're within the Death Star now, so we're going to see time and time again this, uh, this Road of Trials. And it's occurring to me just now. Well, now I'm going to have to go back and watch A New Hope again with my copy of Joseph Campbell by my side, because it's occurring to me just now that one might argue that the belly of the whale scene is the scene where they hide in the smugglers' compartments in the Falcon. Hmm, I'm going to have to go back and look at that again. If you agree with that or disagree with that, then by all means, share your comments either in the live YouTube chat or get in touch on the StoryWonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. So that's the Road of Trials, just a series of tests that the hero will overcome in order to prove his worth and his heroism. We then have the meeting with the goddess, and we will see here, you know, Joseph Campbell wrote this in 1949 about the classic myths of antiquity. So we're going to see some gendered language here. We're going to consider the feminine influence to be loving and nurturing and gentle. And we are going to see the masculine influence to be, you know, judgmental <laughs> and stern faced. Obviously, you know, your mileage may vary with that. I don't think that the language that we use to describe these is actually that important or significant. What really matters is that we have first the encounter with the nurturing force and then the encounter with the, hmm, the sterner, more disciplined force. And between two, between those two, of course, we have the woman as temptress moment, which we'll get to in just one second. The meeting with the goddess. This is the point where the person experiences a love that has the power and significance of the all-powerful, all-encompassing, unconditional love that a fortunate infant may experience with his or her mother. I'm not very comfortable with that definition of this scene. This is generally a moment at which the hero encounters beauty and goodness and kindness and gentleness. And I think it is possible to match that scene with Luke's first meeting with Leia. Certainly, you know, the way that that is shot, the way that the music comes up, we're, we're seeing something powerful there. We then move on to the woman as temptress scene. This is traditionally the appeal to the hero's base nature. The hero is going to be led off the path of righteousness and goodness by the seduction of a woman. This is, if you like, Odysseus returning home and being seduced by the sirens. It's that beat. There's nothing like that in Star Wars. Nothing like that in A New Hope at all. We then have the atonement with the father scene. This is the scene in which the hero confronts the discipline and ordered structure of the masculine worldview. Again, we're not seeing that in Star Wars either. Luke is separated from the two masculine presences in his life because they are in conflict the one with the other. This, of course, is the duel between Vader and Obi-Wan. We then hit apotheosis. This is the moment at which the hero becomes all that he is capable of becoming. Certainly no moment like that in Star Wars, not during this part of the story anyway. We then have the ultimate boon. This is the reward that the hero brings back from the supernatural realm into the mundane realm. Nothing like that either. Arguably, Perhaps the secret Death Star plans contained within R2-D2 might work, but that's complicated because they were already there. This is more a, a reveal of information than an actual change in our circumstance. Yeah. From there, we move into Act 3 and the return. We have the refusal of the return. This is oftentimes a skipped scene. There's nothing like this in, uh, in Star Wars, unless you count that moment where Luke wants to stay, wants to rush to Obi-Wan to aid him, even though he has already fallen. And he is 
pulled by his friends onto the Falcon. The magic flight is in the context of A New Hope, the flight of the Falcon from the Death Star. This is the this is the the dizzying and accelerated escape from the supernatural realm. You know, oftentimes you'll have your hero climbs on the back of a dragon or a Pegasus or a something and is flown home. The return journey is much faster. This is basically skipping over the road of trials. The return journey is much faster than the journey out. We then have the rescue from without, where an external force intercedes in order to assist the hero and help him on his way. That does happen in A New Hope, but it happens right at the end of the story. That is the intercession of Han during the trench run, when the Falcon returns and and removes Vader from the equation so that Luke can accomplish his goal. That is a classic rescue from without scene. We then have the crossing of the threshold, the return from the supernatural world to the natural world, to the mundane realm. Arguably, that happens after we escape from the Death Star when we arrive at the briefing scene. We are The, the Death Star really does dominate the middle of this movie. Even though we're only there for, for a relatively short period of time, it really dominates the middle of the movie, and it feels like a different world. So... I'm kind of comfortable making that comparison. And then we close out with the master of two worlds. Our hero has managed to synthesize his natural and innate greatness in the natural realm, and then his heroic greatness in the supernatural realm, and is now just all that. He is just everything he needs to be, and that leads directly to freedom to live, the right to make one's own choices and control one's own Destiny. Maya is noting here uh, that there are a number of episodes of Babylon 5 that crib from uh, Joseph Campbell. Yes, Falling Toward Apotheosis is is great. Some fine day, Maya will do a seminar series on, on Babylon 5 or some kind of podcast. I don't know. One of my favorite, favorite series of all time. So how does the hero's journey map to Star Wars? The gloss, I think, is this. Pretty well in the first act not so well thereafter. And that's normal. That's to be expected. Because ultimately, Lucas is clearly inspired by Campbell. There are clear references and structural echoes of monomythic structure throughout Star Wars. But he's not interested in telling a monomythic story. He's interested in doing something very different. Luke is not a classical hero. When you look at monomythic structure, you're looking at heroes of, of Greek antiquity. You're looking at your Heracles and your Perseus and your Theseus. You're looking at great heroes who are special by virtue of their birth. And Luke has that, but he's not, he's not motivated by the same things. And he certainly doesn't end up in the same place. So while I think the first act of Star Wars absolutely mirrors monomythic structure in its opening movements, I don't think that the rest of the story really adheres terribly closely to monomythic structure, and I don't think that that is a flaw. This is the thing. I think it is perfectly appropriate for George Lucas to draw inspiration from Joseph Campbell without being constrained by it. Had he adhered more closely to monomythic structure, the end of the movie would have been much less impressive. He manages to do something that we've been doing in modern storytelling for, my God, the last 500 years. We push the climax further and further back. You'll note from Campbellian structure that that moment of apotheosis, that moment where the hero achieves perfection and conquers and gets whatever it was that he went into the supernatural realm for, that happens at the end of the middle third of the story. And then there is an extended return home. That's great if you're Aladdin venturing into the Cave of Wonders to get the lamp. That's not so great if you want to tell an exhilarating edge of the seat story about X-Wings taking down the Death Star. So while I don't think that monomythic structure maps terribly well to Star Wars, 
I absolutely credit the inspiration. And I think that when Lucas deviates from it, it's all to the good. All right. Let me see. How many questions do we have here? Oh no, Crash Test Bonnie just showed up. 10 a.m. Eastern is not the same time, not the same as 10 a.m. Mountain. I know, I know. We're struggling with time zones. It's always the same here. Yeah. Oh, and some interest in the Babylon 5 seminar series. We will get to that, I promise. Oh, and Garrett's talking about the Throne trilogy here. Yes. Yes, the uh, the Timothy Zahn Throne trilogy. Now, uh, what do they call them? Legends? Is that the official designation? They're Star Wars legends now because they're not canon. All of that stuff was was wiped away. All of the expanded universe was was rendered non-canonical, but they still have this, this odd position as legends, which is, my God, which is interesting by itself, isn't it? The idea that you can have this quasi-canonical expanded universe that isn't true, but kind of speaks toward a truth, much as the same way as our real-life legends do, I'm really interested and increasingly interested in the way that Star Wars addresses itself as a text. That is something that I'm always fascinated by wherever I stumble upon it. And to find Star Wars now meaningfully doing that, oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled and excited. We will talk about the trailer in due course. So if Star Wars, both Star Wars in terms of A New Hope and Star Wars in terms of the original trilogy, if Star Wars is not a hero's journey story, if it is not monomythically structured, how is it structured? Well, as I said during the lectures for each individual movie, each film falls into pretty much a classic Aristotelian three-act structure. And oftentimes when we think of Aristotelian three-act structure, we, we mean beginning, middle, and an end. But of course, that is true of all stories and all things. All things have a beginning and a middle and an end. And I'm treading perilously close to, you know, philosophies of the infinite there. But uh, for, for practical purposes, all things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we use that as a shorthand for Aristotelian three-act structure. But Aristotelian three-act structure is actually a little more complicated and sophisticated than that. And when I say Aristotelian for the really hardcore story nerds amongst you, I'm not talking about the structure that was laid forth by Aristotle in the Poetics. This is the structure that was refined from Aristotle's original work through you know, the annals of, of Greek culture. And this is the structure that has led basically to our default Western mode of storytelling. If you go to other parts of the world, you will find other innate and default structures. I'm doing some reading right now on, on the most basic uh, mythic and post-mythic storytelling forms in Asia, particularly in Japan. And there's some fascinating stuff there. It's all very, very different from this Aristotelian three-act structure that has inspired most of Western storytelling. There are some great similarities. There are there are structural forms in other parts of the world that are also three-act stories, and there are some that are very, very different. There are some that put the stresses, the narrative stresses, in very different places. But let's take a look at three-act structure and how it works. This, then, is our classic three-act structure, our story delineated into three acts with seven anchor scenes. This is the way that I have been teaching story structure now for the last, my God, five years. This is the way that, that uh, my wife Lonnie and I figured out story structure. This is what we've been teaching for all these years over at storywonk.com. This is basically how it works. Over the course of three acts, you're going to describe seven anchor scenes. These are the big moments. These are the big turning points. The first scene is your inciting incident. This is the first thing that happens. This is the moment at which your conflict emerges. Your protagonist's goal is crossed by your antagonist's goal. This is when the story starts. We move through the first act in which 
our hero tries to engage with the problem, tries to overcome the challenge, tries to achieve his goal in the same way as he always has. By the time we get to the end of the first act, he has realized, oh, that is not going to work. Something is going to have to change. Something needs to be different if he's going to accomplish his goal. That leads to our second point, acceptance. We then move into the second act, and our next anchor scene occurs right slap bang in the middle of the second act. This is our midpoint. There are a number of different kinds of midpoints. Sometimes the midpoint will be the reversal. The hero is pursuing something for the first half of the story. At this point, suddenly the tables are turned and the thing that he was pursuing is now pursuing him. There are other kinds of midpoint. There's the, the epiphanic midpoint or the revelatory midpoint where some information is revealed that suddenly changes our understanding of everything we have seen thus far. So there are multiple kinds of midpoints, but they all serve the same structure, which is to mark that point at which the expanding conflict begins to contract. If you imagine from the beginning of the first act there, things are getting wider and wider and wider. We're adding more characters, more plots, more elements, asking more questions. At the midpoint, we begin to start closing those down. We begin to end subplots. We begin to, to remove characters. We begin to answer questions. We then arrive at the end of the second act. This is the point at which we lock our conflict. This is where we say, okay, we have learned all that we need to learn in order to challenge the antagonist, in order to achieve our goal. We don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but we know how we're going to try at least. So that is our no way out point at the end of act two. We move into act three and we have the fifth anchor scene, the dark moment. This is the moment at which all seems to be lost, but the hero persists. The hero continues to fight even in the face of failure because of the transformation that the hero has undergone through the story as a whole. He or she is a different person now. They're going to keep fighting because that is the thing to do. We then have our climax. That is the moment at which the hero achieves their goal finally. And then all of that conflict, all of that tension, all of that stress is released. We come all the way back down to resolution right there at the bottom right. Resolution is our denouement. That is the end. Yeah. All right. So how does this map to Star Wars? Well, I think this is how it maps to Star Wars. This is how it maps to A New Hope, at least. Our inciting incident is, as I mentioned earlier, Luke finding Leia's message in R2-D2. This is the information that sets him on his quest. This is a classic call to adventure in the Cambellian sense. We then move through Act 1, where Luke tries to interact with this story, tries to engage with the story in the same way that he always has. He is himself unchanged until he farm devastated and his uncle and aunt dead. At that point, he makes the decision that he's going to go with Obi-Wan, that he's going to become a Jedi like his father, and he's going to rescue the princess. That is the end of Act 1. That is our moment of acceptance. We then move into Act 2. We come through the cantina. We get on the Falcon. We fly off. We escape the Star Destroyers into hyperspace, and we reach our midpoint, which, as I said in the lecture, is kind of a, a tripartite middle section here. The, 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 the middle scene of A New Hope is really three short scenes smushed together. The most important part of this, I think, is Luke training with the remote. This is the moment at which he feels the force for the first time, and as Obi-Wan says, he has taken his first step into a larger world. That keeps our focus on what the actual story of A New Hope is, which is Luke's, I was going to say battle with, contest with, conflict with the force. 
At the end of the second act, we escape from the Death Star. Obi-Wan dies. We escape from the Death Star. Actually, the end of the second act, the no way out but through scene, is the briefing scene. This is the scene where we absolutely, textually, explicitly lock our conflict for the last act of the movie. We then move into that third act. We, we set off for the Death Star. The dark moment is that moment at which the trench run seems doomed to failure. Specifically, I would argue, when the first shot misses. That is the moment when it seems as though this will never work, though obviously we have to, that extended dark moment of, of Vader bearing down on Luke and drawing ever closer. Then we have our climax, which is not the moment when the Death Star explodes, but is in fact the moment when Luke chooses to use the Force, when he chooses to turn off his targeting computer and trust in the Force. That is our climax. And then our resolution medals for everyone except Chewbacca. That is the three-act structure of A New Hope when we understand that Luke is our sole protagonist and his conflict is an internal one with regard to the Force. How does that map then to the trilogy as a whole? Let's take a look at the next slide. Here is the trilogy as a whole. This too reflects Luke's ongoing conflict with the Force. That is the story of Star Wars, as we'll see here. So our inciting incident is the same. Luke finds Leia's message in R2-D2. That is going to be the inciting incident for the original trilogy. The end of the first act is the end of the first movie. This is Luke destroying the Death Star. But the turning point is not Luke destroying the Death Star. The turning point is Luke trusting in the Force. We talked about acceptance, right? That moment of acceptance is his acceptance of Obi-Wan's advice, the moment where he turns off the targeting computer. That is what changes it. We then move into Act 2. We have the Hoth scene at the beginning of Empire, of course. He then goes off to Dagobah. The midpoint in the middle of Act 2 is Luke abandoning his training on Dagobah in order to save his friends. This is the choice that he makes that changes the direction of the narrative. He was on one path. Now he's on an entirely different path. And because of that, we move through the resolution of Empire. He confronts Vader when he isn't ready, when he is unskilled and he loses his hand. In addition to, as we noted in the Empire Lecture, in addition to being unable to save his friends or materially affect the plot in any way, in fact. We then move in from there to Act 3. Oh, the, 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 uh, the, the specificity of the fourth anchor scene there, of the no way out scene, is actually that last moment when Luke is fleeing on the Falcon and Vader is reaching out to him. And Luke understands that the only way that he is going to be free, the only way that he is going to be able to achieve his goal and save the day is by confronting Vader. He knows what he has to do in the third act. That's where we lock off our conflict. We then get into the third act, and as I said during the Jedi lecture, one of the problems with Jedi is that the Jabba's palace sequence, while enjoyable, isn't connected directly to the central core plot of the movie. It isn't connected to that core narrative conflict. So we kind of have to shuffle that off to the side, or at least just, just wait for it to be over, because the main plot in terms of uh, Luke's relationship with the Force, his relationship with Vader, only really begins when we get back to Dagobah, and then ultimately when we get to Endor, when Luke surrenders and goes to meet with the Emperor, that is our dark moment. That is the moment when all seems lost. It seems likely that, or or I guess more specifically, when he is meeting with the Emperor and we have the scene in which the Emperor reveals that it is, in fact, a trap. And we have that wonderful exchange when Luke tells him that his overconfidence is his weakness. And the Emperor replies, your faith in your friends is yours. From there, we have our final battle. And we have, of course, as I mentioned in the lecture, Luke achieving his goal. Luke emerging victorious. 
by virtue of inaction, he doesn't raise his hand against the emperor. He allows a natural justice to be restored through inaction, through, I keep wanting to say passivity, but that sounds as though he's inessential to the proceedings. He's not. The choice not to fight is as powerful, as important, as structurally necessary as the choice to fight. In much the same way, this event would not have unfolded in the way that it does if Luke were absent. Of course, Vader wouldn't have spontaneously decided to throw the Emperor into whatever that giant pit of doom is, and seriously, Osha should have a word or two with the Death Star designers. Luke's choice not to fight is the climax of the trilogy. And then everything is restored, and Luke's arc, at least his relationship with the Force, is specifically resolved. We get our resolution there when he sees the Force ghost of Anakin at the party, not because it's the Force ghost of his dad, but because that is the moment when it is absolutely clear that he has saved, liberated, restored something something intangible of his father. He really has restored the world to justice. Wow, that was a long, long structural analysis of these movies. Let me uh, cancel that slide and come back to you here. Great, great, great. Yes, ain't no party like an Ewok party, because an Ewok party don't stop until you set fire to your dad. <laughs> great. Good, good, good. All right. That, then is the structure of A New Hope and the greater structure of the original trilogy. Neither, I wanna be careful. I, I always want to qualify when I'm making definitive declarative statements like this. Neither Empire nor Jedi break so neatly into three-act structures, but that is because I think much in the same way as you know the modern phenomenon of of trilogizing successful movies you know go look at the matrix movie for example you have the first matrix movie which is a standalone movie then you produce the two sequels that expand that standalone movie into a broader trilogy now the two matrix sequels of course are famously bad but when you watch them with the original movie they do actually form something of a narrative structure it's it's not successful it's not entirely cohesive or valuable but it is present. It is there. And I think we get that from Star Wars too. The first story is a damn near perfect three-act structure. And then the trilogy as a whole is a damn near perfect three-act structure, even though the second and third parts are structurally a little more, a little more uneven. And it's not that they're not three-act structures. As I described in the lectures, it's just that they're not as crisp. They're not as neatly delineated, particularly the problem with Jedi as I mentioned before, where we don't unify our plots in the final third of that movie in order to, to leverage a really effective narrative, uh, a narrative disconjunction, you know? The, the dark moment in Return of the Jedi is actually spread over three or four different dark moments, depending on which plot you're looking at. It would be the matter of a trivial edit to unify those dark moments and really give you that sucker punch and then explode outward from there. Yes, Carla is uh, Carla is voicing the opinion of the world when she says, I loathe Matrix 2 and 3, love the first one, though. I will defend Matrix 3 up to a point. It's clearly nothing like as good as the first one. It's not even necessarily a good film, but it has at least interesting things about it. But when you watch the whole trilogy, I do think that there's a unified story there. But you're right, you're right. The Matrix 1, that's where it's at. Yes. <laughs> good, good, good. Oh, and Garrett, Garrett says, Carla, 
there are no Matrix sequels. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps in that ultimate universe, <laughs> everyone's agreeing. Okay. No, you're you're right, you guys. You're right. Okay, let's get to it here. Because I have one more question. If you guys have questions that you'd like me to address, oh, Garrett speaks up in favor of the Animatrix, which really is fantastic. Uh, if you guys are, uh, if you guys have questions that you'd like me to address, then by all means, shout out in the YouTube chat or on Twitter there. Otherwise, I'm going to move into. Oh, you know what? I did have another thing that I wanted to look at. This is what I wanted to look at because this is another take on three act structure. There has been talk, of course, about. Han Solo as a more desirable, more interesting, more complicated protagonist for the Star Wars series. It's a common refrain on the internet that, did you know actually Han Solo's the hero of Star Wars? And in a sense, depending on your definition of hero, that may well be true, but he's certainly not the protagonist of Star Wars because his role is not connected to the core narrative conflict. And here I've kind of illustrated his arc through the trilogy as a whole to see how that works. We have Han's inciting incident is running into Luke and Obi-Wan in Mos Eisley. That is the first moment at which he comes into contact with the goal that is going to oppose him. And here we have to be very careful because the goal that is going to oppose him, the force that is pushing back against Han Solo in that first movie is not Jabba or Greedo or, you know, his, his scoundrel history. It is in fact Luke's desire to be the hero. It's the call to heroism that is actually pushing back against Han through that first movie. Therefore, the inciting incident is the moment when that conflict begins, which is the moment when he meets Obi-Wan and Luke in the cantina. The end of the first act is his decision to return and save Luke in the Death Star battle. He, he flies into danger. He absolutely takes the heroic path. And that, by the way, really is a great story. That is a, a textbook example of, of a character arcing from the inciting incident to the conclusion. Once we get into the second act, though, his story all kind of falls apart. Han Solo is primarily reactive through the course of the second movie. He bounces from incident to incident to incident so that we can give him all the action-adventure stuff, so that we can give Luke all the actual plot stuff. The midpoint of Act 2, were this Han Solo story, would be the arrival at Bespin. Arguably, that is kind of a reversal midpoint, you could argue, because he is now running into his old life in the context of his new life. It's clear right off the, uh, right off the bat that Londo is still the scoundrel that he always was, but Han has been transformed by his experiences, sure, and his love for Leia. We then arrive at the end of Act 2. He is frozen. We get the I love you, I know exchange. It doesn't really look a conflict. Um, at least, obviously, not Han's conflict because there's no action that he can take there. He is essentially passive in a moment that is about him understanding the overarching nature of his plot. Were this his story? By the time we get into Act 3, by the time we get into Jedi, of course, Han is a plot device. He is moved from place to place in order to motivate things. Harrison Ford has pretty much checked out through much of that movie, unfortunately. And Han doesn't arc, doesn't change, doesn't really accomplish anything. His involvement in the core narrative conflict of Return of the Jedi has nothing at all to do with his personal core narrative conflict. Save one moment. Arguably, arguably. You could say that the midpoint of 
his arc through Jedi is that moment where he steps up to lead the assault on the Endor surface. Though we don't motivate that, and there's no, there's no change coming out of that in terms of his character development. So, yeah, this is not definitively Han Solo's story. Ah, and Bonnie asks, what about Leia as the hero of the trilogy? I would love to believe that were true, and I was struck watching the movies again as, as part of the live tweet series that we've been doing. Just how great and vibrant and active and, and progressive Leia is as a character, and that is true in all three films. She gets moments of absolute heroism in all three films, whether that is leading the fight out of the... the uh, the prison cell, or it's showing up in Jabba's palace as Boosh in Jedi, or it's, you know, leading the, uh, <laughs> yes, she is pretty proactive throughout, as Bonnie says, or it's, it's yes, her involvement in, in Empire, particularly once we get to Bespin. The problem is that she gets sidelined whenever the action wants to focus on the boys. That's a common complaint. Yeah. Does Leia arc? That is kind of the fundamental question, if you're going to talk about Leia's protagonism in the context of the original trilogy. And she doesn't. Leia, arguably, with perhaps the sole exception of her relationship with Han, Leia arguably doesn't arc meaningfully in the course of the story. She pretty much is the same person at the end as she was at the beginning, except for the surprising absence of her British accent. All right. Bonnie says, Leia, my first feminist. No, she really is a great character and is absolutely surprisingly proactive uh, and progressive if you look at the context of the time, certainly. All right, let us move on. Here we are, almost an hour in. This is going to run about 19 minutes, as I promised. So <laughs> let's move on and get to the last major question that I was asked, and then we'll talk a little about the, uh, we'll talk a little about the trailer at that point. Oh, if you want more about structure, if you are interested in the kind of the mechanical underpinnings of, of sci-fi and fantasy storytelling, if in particular you're a writer or you're a real story nerd and you love getting your hands dirty with all of this talk of motivation and core narrative conflict and arcing and anchor scenes and act breaks and all of this stuff, if you like the, the mechanical side of the craft, then I promised on Tuesday night that I would put in place a discount on my sci-fi and fantasy class. And I have, in fact, done that. I've taken... Uh, two-thirds off the price, 50 bucks off the price of my sufficiently advanced magic class, which is a six-hour class all about writing sci-fi and fantasy. You can find that now, storywonk.com slash starwonks. That is a special offer for listeners to the, uh, to the Starwonk seminar. So storywonk.com slash starwonks. You'll find the special link there. I hope you like the class. It's a really good class. I really enjoy teaching that. Um, it really does get into the weeds. And, and, and I take more time to really lay out the overall thesis about sci-fi and fantasy storytelling, how you approach sci-fi and fantasy storytelling, why it's important, why it is so, so vital, why it's oftentimes dismissed as escapist literature, but it is fundamentally the most elemental kind of storytelling that, that, that humans do. Um, so if you're interested in that side of things, then by all means, storywonk.com slash starwonks. I made good on my promise and put that page up. Let's get to the last question here which comes to us from Katie. Katie was interested in fate and in destiny. Katie asks, isn't the story of Star Wars about Luke's destiny rather than harmony? He's becoming the Jedi he's supposed to be, so isn't this a kind of man versus destiny conflict? And I have to say, firstly, that I was 
immediately intrigued by the notion of a man versus destiny conflict. That is, that is such an interesting idea. I don't even necessarily know how you would pursue that as a primary kind of conflict. I did think that it has similarities with a man versus nature conflict. Man versus nature stories are those stories in which the antagonistic force doesn't care at all about the protagonistic force. It is just so huge, so overwhelming, so unstoppable that it is an effective block for whatever the protagonist wants to do. Man versus destiny would be a really interesting, a really interesting angle. So, I mean, in the first place, no, I don't think it's a man versus destiny story. I don't think that it is fundamentally about Luke's destiny. I, I talked with Katie a little bit about this uh, and explained kind of where I was coming from on that. And I think we, we reached a point of agreement. But the reason that I bring up the question here is that it encouraged me to go back to the scripts for the original three movies and look for references to destiny. Look for references to fate. Look for anything that points us in this direction. Anything that might suggest to us that Luke's destiny is narratively significant, is, is thematically interesting, is a complicated topic in the first place. Let's get right to this. Because what I did was I went through the scripts and I pulled out every single use of the word destiny. And I was, you know, generous with this. I also went in search of words like hope and, and, and uh, words like hope, words like fate rather, um, and other similar themes. This is what I got. There are two references to destiny in Star Wars A New Hope, and these are they. The first comes from Han Solo, who says, Kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe. There's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. I'm not going to do voices on this. <laughs> uh, we then also have Obi-Wan saying, they must be delivered safely to, they must be delivered safely, excuse me, or other star systems will suffer the same fate as Alderaan. Your destiny lies upon a different path than mine. The force will be with you always. What we see here is that in the context of a new hope, destiny is not used specifically. I would draw the distinction, I guess, between destiny with a lowercase d and destiny with an uppercase d. This is lowercase d destiny. This is the nebulous, vague sense of one's purpose and path. We are not talking about a specific destiny in either case. We move on from there to Empire, where we get four quotes, one from Yoda and three from Vader, three of basically the same quote from Vader in Empire. Yoda says, a Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side, anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the Force are they. Easily they flow, quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you, it will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Then Vader says on the same topic, Your destiny lies with me, Skywalker. Obi-Wan knew this to be true. He then says, You can destroy the Emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. And finally, as Luke is flying away from Bespin in the hold of the Millennium Falcon, Vader says, Luke, it is your destiny. What you'll note here is that like Han Solo and Obi-Wan in A New Hope, Yoda is using a lowercase d destiny. Yoda is talking, about, and I'm obviously not talking typographically, they're all written with a lowercase d in the original script, but Yoda seems to be talking about destiny. He's using, you know, this hypothetical suggestion. He's saying, if once you start down the dark path forever, will it consume your destiny? He's talking about a possible occurrence. Vader, though, seems to be referring to a specific destiny. You can destroy the emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. He seems to be suggesting, no, 
This is not some abstract sense of the path before you or where your life may lead you. This is a specific prediction. Let's move on to Jedi. Yoda gives us, we have, uh, <laughs> yeah, we have six quotes here. Uh, one from Yoda and Obi-Wan, two each from Vader and the Emperor. Yoda says, basically recapitulating the point from Empire, anger, fear, aggression, the dark side are they. Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. And then Obi-Wan also says, you cannot escape your destiny. Both of those, again, arguably less so with Obi-Wan. But both of those, I would argue, are lowercase d destinies. We're not talking about a specific destiny that lies in wait for Luke. Rather, we're talking about something a little more nebulous. This is just, we could replace destiny with the future. Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your future. You cannot escape your future. That's pretty much what we're talking about. But look what happens when we look at Vader and the Emperor. Vader says, if that is your destiny, uh, this, is when, uh, this is when Luke says that he'll have to kill him. And Vader says, if that is your destiny, the emperor says, it is your destiny. You, like your father, are now mine. Vader, uh, Vader says later, if you will not fight, then you will meet your destiny. And the emperor says, now fulfill your destiny and take your father's place at my side. This would have been better if I had done voices, I think, though the voices would not have been good. Look at the difference there. In both of those excerpts, Vader uses this, this hypothetical. He's... he's posing a response. Luke says, you'll have to kill me. Vader says, if that's your destiny. Vader says, if you will not fight, then you will meet your destiny. He, I mean, by virtue of the fact that these are possible futures for Luke, seems to be using lowercase d destiny. But the emperor isn't. The emperor is talking about something very definite. It is your destiny. You, like your father, are now mine. Those two thoughts don't seem to be separate thoughts. Those seem to be the same thought that he has prophesied, he has foreseen Luke taking Vader's place. Now fulfill your destiny and take your father's place at my side. He is referring to an actual, an actual physical destiny. Yeah. So what do we see there? Very little, I think, of significance. Usually, and obviously this is going to change, for those of you who, who, who know the prequel trilogy well, we're going to talk a lot more about destiny and prophecy and such things when we get to the prequel trilogy. But in the original trilogy, there is essentially no reliance on a notion of destiny or fate. We're talking about free will. We're talking about agency. So is that purposeful? Are we led, are we inclined to see destiny as being a tool of domination? Does Destiny and its association with the dark side suggest that that a fixed future robs you of agency, of free will, of self-control. Is that notion of capital D destiny inherently bad? Is there arguably not a sense of destiny at all? And the emperor is simply using this as a means of describing that which I have already foreseen. It is your destiny because I have seen you do it. And of course in all this time, we're kind of skipping over the fact that the emperor's, the emperor's prophecy, the emperor's vision, whatever it was, wasn't accurate. He didn't see Luke taking his place at his side, or, or if he did see it, it didn't come to pass that Luke would stand at his side in Vader's place. And also Vader's version of that, that prophecy didn't come to pass either, because Luke directly doesn't kill the emperor. Now, we don't get enough information to talk meaningfully about what that means for 
the force or what it means for free will in the Star Wars universe. We will return to both of those topics during the discussions of the prequel movies. But within the span of the original trilogy, we really don't seem to have much to say about destiny at all. Let's see what you guys are saying in the chat here. Carla says, is there a difference between the meaning of the words fate and destiny and predestination? There is a difference, uh, but it is semantically subtle. And I think that, um, I think that we're, we're broadly looking at the same thing. Predestination, I suppose, is, suggests a kind of mechanical contrivance to, to make something come to pass. Carla is asking this question because Carla is not a native English speaker, though I'm sure I will say definitively, in fact, that her, her uh, English is better than mine. Elizabeth Stevens asked, I wonder if Vader places a greater emphasis on destiny as a kind of refusal to admit that his regrets are consequences of his personal choices. That is certainly true, I would argue, in Empire. It's conspicuous in its absence by the time we get to Jedi, when Vader certainly seems to be talking about destiny as just a thing that can happen. If I am forced to kill you, then that'll be your destiny. If it's not, then maybe your destiny is to go get frozen yogurt. Maybe your destiny is to, you know, Netflix and chill. Who, who can say? Your destiny is going to be whatever happens. In Empire, though, he certainly seems to be talking about that. Let me cancel this slide and come back to you. He certainly seems to be talking about that more directed, more authoritative, more constrained and controlled and precise kind of destiny, the kind of destiny that the emperor talks about throughout Jedi, I would argue. But that's a really great catch, Elizabeth. Yeah. Good. Uh, Maya says, is the prequel trilogy available in streaming services? Uh, never seen two and three. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it is not available free on streaming services. You can buy the digital set from Amazon and I believe iTunes, um, though it's pretty expensive. And certainly I've seen some reviews online that suggest that the digital streaming package is not quite as good in terms of the video quality as the Blu-ray set. So your mileage may vary. Uh, getting hold of Star Wars is still more difficult than you might expect it to be. Yeah. Oh, and you're getting that response 20 times over in the chat. That's excellent. Yes. Good, good, good. The prequels aren't on Prime, says Garrett. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I bought the uh, I bought the Blu-ray set, and I'm kind of glad that I did. Um, the original film quality looks just fantastic. The CGI from the special editions now looks worse than it did before, but that's the trade-off that you 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 get. Yeah. All right. So as I said, that discussion of destiny is really going to be a lead-in. This is another one of these foundational pieces. You know, we're establishing that destiny does not have a particularly prominent role, if a role at all in the original trilogy. That is going to be subverted by the time we get to the prequel trilogy. We will look at that in due course. I think that is pretty much it for our discussion of the original trilogy, unless you guys have questions. I will say that we're going to do the same pattern of lecture and live tweet for the prequel trilogy. So we're going to have the lecture for The Phantom Menace will be out next Friday. That is October the 30th. The following Tuesday, we'll do the live tweet. Then we'll do the uh, the lecture for Attack of the Clones and so on and so forth all the way through. And then ultimately, we will have another session like this for the prequel trilogy and maybe even one subsequent session where we have a further live discussion about the entire saga. We'll see how that shakes out. Unfortunately, I can't commit right now to looking at uh, the Clone War animated series or the animated movie come to that or Rebels. I am very interested in Star Wars Rebels. I will be checking that out. I could talk for several hours about the expanded universe and the legends as they are now, but uh, that's not directly relevant anymore, I guess. So 
I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll talk too much about that, but if you guys want to hear me talk about it, get in touch and we'll, we'll talk. Um, let's wrap it up there then. If you guys are uh, sensitive to spoiler topics, I guess, then you should probably drop out now. I don't know any spoilers. I'm not going to be spoiling anything. I will be speculating a little about the, uh, about the trailer. Let me also paste into the chat here. We're watching live. Check out the YouTube chat where you can find now a link to the trailer. If you haven't seen it already, you can absolutely go and watch that right now. This is the uh, first complete trailer for The Force Awakens that was released on Monday. So you can go and watch that, and then we'll talk about it just a little bit, because I'm fascinated by this trailer. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. I am more excited by by The Force Awakens now than I have been throughout its entire production phase. You know, I'm looking at it as a text, I'm, I'm feeling confident about the way that it will, the way that it will comport itself with regard to the earlier movies, and that's for good reason. Let's uh, let's take a look. I'll say first off, by the way, that the main thing that excites me about the Force Awakens trailer specifically is the use of music. The fact that we are using this rearrangement of the Force theme rather than the Star Wars theme suggests something very evocative to me. It suggests that we are really taking the mythology of Star Wars seriously. And you can pretty much track my favorite parts of Star Wars by the use of the music pretty much every time the Force theme shows up. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be engaged, I'm going to be moved and excited and interested by that particular part of the story. I think that using that in the trailer is a very bold choice, certainly a very unexpected choice, particularly when we get right at the very end of the trailer that the slightest little hint of the main theme relying on the force theme really gives it a different texture really makes it feel to me at least and your mileage may vary but makes it feel more mythic and that's what i'm looking for that's absolutely what i'm looking for for me one of the great scenes uh, one of the great sins of the prequel trilogy is that the universe feels smaller it doesn't feel as expansive it doesn't feel as broad and part of that is by virtue of its specificity we seek to explain rather than gesture toward the use of the force theme in the trailer really works for me. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> good. Let's talk, though, about the most interesting thing. And I have a slide here with a short transcription of the dialogue from the trailer. This is what it says. Ray says, presumably to Han, though this is a trailer, so we can't be completely sure about the way that this is intercut in the final film, but in the trailer, at least, it seems that she says, there are stories about what happened. And Han replies, it's true, all of it. The dark side, the Jedi, they're real. And if you are anything like me, if you have any kind of interest in intertextuality, in the ways in which a text refers to itself, speaks to itself and about itself, if you are interested in the idea, if you are moved, for example, by the fact that The Hobbit, the published novel, The Hobbit, is the book that Bilbo writes when he's at Rivendell during the events of The Lord of the Rings, if you're interested in that fact, then this should speak to you too. Because when we use words like true and real within a fictional frame, we are walking on very thin ice. We are walking a dangerous path. Because, of course, in a sense, it's not. None of it is true. None of it is real. But that's the, that's the rude and, and ill-formed and mechanistic response 
to this text, to this story. Because sure, stories aren't real and they aren't true, but in a broader sense, in a larger sense, in a truer sense, they are real and they are true. And Star Wars is real and it's true. And to me, when Han says that line, he's talking to us. He's not saying the events that we saw are true. He's saying that to Ray within the, within the frame of the narrative. That's absolutely what he's saying, but it has a broader significance, which is this, what you saw, what you lived, what you felt mattered. It was real and it was true to you. And we're going to deliver that. That to me, more than the special effects, more than X-Wings, TIE Fighters, more than, more than any, any element out of all the preview, uh, the, the preview material that I've seen, this one line makes me optimistic for the future because it absolutely suggests to me that this movie knows what it's doing and will do so responsibly. There's also one last little beat here. A few people have been talking about how come there's no Luke in the trailer, and I would like to show you this frame right here. Someone is reaching out to pet R2-D2, someone with a conspicuously robotic right hand. Is there anyone that we know in the Star Wars universe that has a robotic right hand? Guys, I'm calling it. That is Luke right there. <laughs> I don't know that for sure, of course, but it super is. All right. I think that is it. What are we talking about here in the chat? Are we talking about Jam? Are we talking about Jam and the holograms? Garrett says that he's watching... Garrett's watching Jam and the Holograms, the real thing, not the cinematic abomination coming out today. Is there a Jam movie that's coming out today? Am I completely out of the loop here? This is what happens when you no longer have little, little girls living in the house. Now my girls are, are, <laughs> are in their early teenage years. Wow, that is terrifying. All right. Guys, I think that is going to do it. I think we're going to wrap it up there. A quick reminder once more that if you're looking for that sufficiently advanced magic class, if the really deep dive stuff into narrative theory and craft interests you, or if you have any interest at all in writing science fiction or fantasy, storywonk.com slash starwonks. That'll get you to the, uh, the discount page for the sufficiently advanced magic class. Thank you so much, everyone, for your patience. I know I'm going to take a loop down off the screen there. I know that... Uh, this is a somewhat delayed endeavor. And thank you guys so much for joining me this morning. I'm thrilled that you could all make it uh, for this unusual morning live broadcast. So uh, I think we'll probably um, do this again in the future. This is a pretty good time for me. Though I fear that under the influence of coffee, I talk even more quickly than I normally do. Let's call it quits there. Guys, have a great day. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you all next Friday at noon Eastern time for the lecture for The Phantom Menace. Let's get through the original uh, through the prequel trilogy shall we guys thanks so much for listening i'll talk to you soon bye